I'm Paralympic champion Stephanie Victor. I lost my legs when I was a pedestrian hit by a car, and I made a decision in ICU to document what was happening to me. On December 19th, 1995, I was going out to dinner with my ex-boyfriend when an out-of-control car came up into the driveway and crushed me into the back of his vehicle. And in order for the doctor to save my life, he had to amputate both of my legs. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human, those who have taken the risk to realize their dreams and live fully. Today, we have Stephanie Victor, who is a two-time gold medalist in the Paralympics, a two-time silver medalist, a one-time bronze medalist, four-time world champion, won one overall World Cup, four discipline titles. But what I think is most interesting is that after she had an accident in which a car careening out of control ran into her and ending up in amputating her legs, she started filming her story two weeks after the accident. Stephanie, welcome. And let's get into your story. I was like, was it two weeks? I think it, yeah, it was even less than two weeks. I had a dream in ICU that I would make a film about my recovery. You know, I'd had this, you know, extraordinary life-changing accident and uh, having lost both my legs, what did I envision making a film about it? And that's what I started to do. How did that come about? Because you were you were an actress, you were a filmmaker, USC, USC Film School, right? Yes. And so that's the medium in which you played already. But right. why decide to make a film and especially whether it's two weeks or whether it was right away. I'd always heard that it was right away, you know, that it was right as, away, but it really was. I mean, conscious thought like two weeks is within that realm of like sort of dreamlike morphine state after being in the hospital of like conscious, you're actually coming to conscious thought. Why decide to tell this story? Well, I was in the hospital mm -hmm. uh, when I started filming. I, yeah. I, it was, it, it was an evolution. Okay. So, you know, you, you, you sort of have to, to, to back up to my childhood from my earliest memories. I, I wanted to be an actress. I pursued every angle of acting, performing, dance, musical theater, singing. I'm still not a great singer, but I, I love singing. Um, and Acting led me to Southern California and to the, you know, drama program at USC. And uh, after my first few auditions in the real world of Hollywood, uh, I, it just, it didn't resonate with me. On the real world of Hollywood? Are you allowed to say that? <laughs> did I say it? I don't know, Chris. Like, what did I have for breakfast? I can't even tell you. Um on a cellular level, it did not resonate with me, this world of acting and auditioning. And it, it wasn't what I imagined it would be. What, what interested me was storytelling. And so here across campus at USC was the very prestigious School of Cinema Television. And I started applying right away uh, to the program and I applied to everything. I applied to screenwriting, production, critical studies, and it, it was, I just wanted to get in. All aspects of filmmaking I wanted to learn because I felt, uh, I, I was I was drawn to it. I mean, all I can tell you is that I'm an intuitive person and I have followed my intuition and making films seemed like a far more expansive opportunity in storytelling than just being an actor and and I wasn't even sure I would ever make it as an actor um but I didn't want to be just you know reduced to whatever role I was hired for because I I felt like it was so much more expansive than that 
And USC was just this incredible, it was so different than the, the small town, humble beginnings where I grew up in, in Pennsylvania. And so what, whatever camera I could acquire, and you know, I, I learned so much at USC because it's a very hands-on program. And, and I got into both critical studies and production. I was the first woman ever accepted into both programs. And uh, Dean Daly said, you know, you should graduate in both, which only added another year uh, to my curriculum. But it was very beneficial to me because I, I learned so much through the theory and history of filmmaking in the critical studies aspect. And then the hands-on was production. So what I remember most about film school was Nina Mankus was one of our directing teachers. And she stood up in front of the room and she told us, I mean, she really put us in our place because she's like, you guys think you're directors. You're not directors. You're not anything like you need life experience. And that really resonated with me. Like I, I, I didn't feel insulted by it. Some people, you know, already had a beret and a, and a clapboard and they were certainly parading themselves around campus uh, as directors. And I, I didn't know what I was yet. I just knew that I wanted to be in this creative expression of storytelling. And so laying there in the hospital after losing my legs, I, I, I'm interacting and in, in, with the most interesting and, and, and uh, colorful people in the hospital and the range of emotions that were coming out of me and my family and my friends and the people closest to me, like that was the compelling life experience that I felt Nina Mankus was telling us, you don't have a clue what this is. And I'm like, oh, I'm right in it. I'm, I got to get a camera. I got to film this. And then this vision of this film was, was what gave me uh, the belief in myself to do it. Because I don't even, <laughs> there, there wasn't specific, it wasn't like a complete uh, foreshadowing, you know, where I was looking into the future. I, I, it was a feeling tone that I had as a person sitting in the audience, watching these images on the film. That was my dream. And I, and I just thought, if that is my life. <laughs> and I'm going to capture this and it's going to move people and it's going to uh, bring up empathy and gratitude and, and connection, then I'm right where I'm supposed to be. The life experience is really interesting because you have two very separate kind of life experiences, right? Because you have the experience of you as the patient Right. Going through all of these experiences. And, and obviously, this is a profound life experience. I mean, it's just one of those things that sounds almost impossible to happen in some ways. I mean, this is, I mean, like you were, what, packing your car and, and some guy ran into you in your driveway. Is that right? Yeah, it was actually my ex-boyfriend's house we were standing in his driveway and back then the cd player was in the trunk of the vehicle so he had you know invited me to come around to the back of the car and we were looking at this song on the cd that he wanted to play for me um i'm sorry to a friend edwin mccain and uh the road was actually supposed to be closed. So it was under a considerable amount of construction and a young driver who had only had his driver's license for 10 days was impaired. He was driving under the influence and uh, lost control of the car in the construction zone and came up into the driveway and crushed me into the back of the vehicle where we were standing. So I was, only I was hit. So we were pinned and dragged between the two, I was pinned and dragged between the two cars uh, down the sidewalk. And when the cars came to a stop, I, I, I fell to the ground. I was, I was not unconscious. It's hard to make me go unconscious as we'll talk about in my ski racing career. Um, 
but I saw the the orientation of my legs and it, it looked like I had stepped on a landmine. In fact, that's how the paramedics described it, you know, for, from their observation, uh, it, it was pretty vital. And, uh, you know, my, my right leg was up by my ear and my left leg was twisted around and blown open. And uh, so, you know, I, I was conscious during all of this. I was conscious as the paramedics were getting an IV started and, and getting me in what's called a mass suit, a pair of compression pants to stop the, the, the bleeding and, and to sort of, you know, my, my legs were so, I had compound fractures above and below the knee. So it was really, you know, quite a brutal scene. And uh, they got me to the hospital and uh, into the operating room, actually. So yeah, exactly. They have to get you Exactly. And so the thing is, one, in telling this story, one, you're the patient and you're going through, you're as raw as you're going to be because you don't even begin to understand. I mean, it's hard to comprehend the situation that you're in. But right. then the flip side of it is that you then are the director. And so, so it's kind of an interesting thing to see how you interpret yourself on screen, right? That this is the, oh. you're looking for the most honest, raw moments. And you as the director are going, yes, that's exactly what I mean. But as human beings, we're often thinking, oh, don't show that because that reveals something that might not look exactly the way that I want to look. Uh, the, you... see, see, you're talking in the current state of affairs with on the planet, I think the, the present count is we have 4.6 billion cameras on the planet. Okay. And so we're in a, we're in a, a unique, very different moment in time where everybody's carrying a camera and everybody's filming themselves and everybody is editing themselves. I was filming that, that, that is what is unique about the footage that I caught and has taken me, you know, 27 years to digest. I didn't look at any of the footage until in thoroughly looking at it. You know, there were little bits and pieces that I would grab for television programs and different things that I had appeared on, but actually sitting down and spending hour after hour until 500 hours had passed and, and really looking at it and digesting that. That did not happen until uh, after my crash in Sochi. So that, you know, that's when I really- And that's 2014. So this is- I was in 2014. So, so when, when I was filming, uh, you, you have to understand, I was, I was 26 years old and, and people thought it was kind of cute. Like, she wants to, what's happening to her? Like, nobody had ever done that. Nobody. And, and there was no resistance to being filmed in the hospital. Today, you know, everybody had, the, well, there's HIPAA, so you're not going to film in a hospital. But there's HR departments that, you know, strictly regulate. And, and people are so, so self-conscious. Oh, I can't hold a glass of wine at the party because someone might get a photo of it and then it's on Facebook and then my HR department is going to call me. Like, this is how we operate. That wasn't like that back in 1995. Back in 1995, I was a, a young, creative, like, as if I had a violin, <laughs> my instrument was a camera. And I was like, wow, I, you know, look what happened. Look, what, what do you think? I wanted to film to remember, to digest, to uh, help process. I, and I would like to take credit for directing. <laughs> Not directing, it, it was just, I, I was the one saying, yeah, let's do this. So I guess on one side you could say it's directing, but it wasn't directing in that I had a guy with a boom and we're going into the operating room. It was me like holding the camera saying to my surgeon, is it okay if I film this? And he's like, if you want to, okay. <laughs> like what you and I are doing right now, he and I were having a dialogue on video in the operating room because he was just doing you know, some local, uh, so I have stuff like that in the film, but I, I, I really want to, clarify that who we've evolved to as 
people, as a planet, as, and, and there was a great film at Sundance this year. I'm gonna make a shameless plug for it. It was called The Fantastic Machine. And it won the world, uh, one of the world documentary prizes. I, I wish people could see it here in the U.S. because it really started with the history of film and then all through where we are today. And without giving too much away, there was this one shot in the film where these two guys are on, you know, the tallest building ever in Australia. No safety, no nothing. He's got a cell phone and they're dangling a beautiful woman off the, the building to film it for their social media. This is shock value. I, I, I wasn't filming for that purpose. I was filming because I didn't know the power of the camera. That's what this movie is about. Like, do we understand the power of the camera, the power of the internet, the power of recording stuff and, and, and presenting ourselves? Because it's not raw. What I filmed was raw. <laughs> there was not lighting, there was not sound, there was not manipulation. It, it may be the last remaining effort at documentary. And, and I studied Michael Apted at, at USC. He had a, a brilliant documentary series called Seven Up, and he filmed every seven years. And, and there were all these, you know, very uh, scholastic discussions about well, when you turn the camera on, you're editing, you're affecting the documentary. When you when you edit, you're making a choice. And all of this is true, right? So that's why it's been really hard for me to A, look at myself and know that I lived through this. <laughs> and go, what, what can I do with this information? What am I thinking? Like, I definitely don't look put together, I'm not gonna win 50 most beautiful people like you did. I am gonna look like a very raw, exposed human being who made every effort to stay positive, grateful, move forward, and connect with, because I'll, I'll tell you what, especially in the beginning, what was so moving to me, one, one of the, it happened with many nurses. So to all my nurses, all my doctors, all my medical team, the first nurse, I had been in ICU <laughs> for 10 days and they didn't wash my hair. Okay, we, we had other things to deal with it. More uh, amputations and uh, I remember her stroking my hair and, and I could feel there, there was resistance there. I didn't know what it was. My mother came to tell me later. I, I still had blood in my hair. And she washed it out. Okay. So I don't have that on film. But that is a moment that, that of millions of moments that I carry in my heart of like, oh, we, we don't need reasons like to be kind to one another. It is inherent in our being if we just get out of the way, if we just get out of the way and stop focusing on how we look in social media and comparing ourselves to blah, 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 blah. like forget all that. Like, what are you made of on the inside? And, and what I, some of the things that I filmed is so humbling. My prosthetist, Wendy Brewer, she married uh, Matthew Brewer, who is one of our athletes at the National Ability Center and on the US team. Marcel and I taught him how to ski in a hydra. I digress, but Wendy told me the other night that she had a, uh, she had a, a patient, a bilateral amputee patient come into Hanger Clinic where she is a magnificent prosthetist. And that patient was taken into the room where I have given Wendy one of my uh, gold medal Paralympic posters and I autographed it to Wendy. And Wendy came in and saw this woman looking at the poster and she was in tears. And she turned to Wendy and she said, um, this woman saved my life 27 years ago because I lost my legs around the same time that she did. 
And when I saw her on 2020, ABC's 2020, yes, Barbara Walters did a little story on me after my accident. She said, I was in a very dark place. I was, I was close to taking my own life. And when I saw her, meaning me, she is married, has kids, has grandkids. She's walking and she's, you know, lived this amazing life. And she turned to Wendy and she said, you know, if you still talk to her, will you please tell her thank you? And I said, well, if I, if I ever needed to get out of my own way. And what did you do? Hold on. What did you do that affected this woman? So you I have no idea because you I, didn't 20, her, I didn't talk to her. But I know in that that interview with 2020, I, I talked about how grateful I was to be alive, how uh, empowering it is to forgive and that and that I just automatically in the hospital forgave this young driver who hit me because I imagined that it wasn't his intention to do this. And even though he made some bad choices of drinking and driving or smoking a little marijuana or whatever, like if, if we could just know the future and we don't, like life happens. And, and I set myself free through forgiveness and, uh, and a prayer, an ongoing prayer that uh, he would have a, a full and meaningful life and know that, that I wasn't uh, carrying any uh, negativity against him, that, that, that we were both free. It's what you needed. And this is something that is really strange because I actually saw a very similar thing to what happened to you. I pulled into a gas station. This is amazing. I pulled into a gas station in San Diego and 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 a guy was there in like a, a white suburban or something and was changing his oil and some guy behind him, and I didn't see how it all happened, ended up like pulling like bumper to bumper, like ran right through this guy bumper to bumper. And, and, and it's like, I pulled in as this guy was crumpling to the ground and, you know, he's saying to the other guy, like, why, why didn't you back up? Like, you know, you hit me. Why didn't you? And, and this is all in a, in a parking lot. So, so it's kind of like, I've heard your story, but then I saw it happen. I have no idea what happened to this guy later on, but just looking at that guy lying on the ground, looking up at the other guy, the idea of forgiveness was not necessarily, I don't think was the first thing on his mind, but forgiveness is part of the, part of the self-preservation, isn't it? Of, of how you are going to recover. Is that the story that you thought you were telling when you started filming did you have an idea of what the story was i i wish i was that clever in my imagination i had i didn't i i didn't know where this journey was going to take me i still don't life still keeps showing up with some pretty fantastic surprises what i have always had chris is a, a base in spiritual practice that was taught to me at a before the yes. accident as well yes before the accident I had a near-death experience when I was a child when I was nine years old and this profoundly shaped my pursuit of answers to the existential question why am I here why are we alive what is our purpose what is the meaning in this how do we make meaning what, what, what how do I live my values and defining those values and the thirst for knowledge as well right absolutely so that, that was very much in me as a child and it shaped what I pursued you know in that time between when I was nine years old and 26 so so when my second near-death experience happened, I, I, I was really like, oh yeah, this is it. 
you know, Eckhart Tolle talks about it a lot. And I know you're a fan of, of uh, Master Eckhart, that uh, there's different levels of waking up. And, and when we have a near-death experience, you know, that is a profound waking up, right? And people who have that experience uh, often will continue to seek that, right? The, the waking up to more of who we are and why we're here. And uh, forgiveness, you know, was, was something that I learned very early on. So it was, it was only about applying it in, in this situation. And it, it came, it wasn't, it wasn't anything meditated. That, that's not how spirit works. Spirit comes from your heart. I have a devoted practice of daily kundalini yoga and meditation, which as people who know kundalini yoga as a practice, largely about heart opening. Now, I had no idea when I started kundalini that by daily opening my heart, that I was my little healing what had happened to me. I can look back on it now with some experience that we've been talking about and go, oh, wow, that was it. The cumulative collective experiences of heart opening and, and getting beaten down. Like it, it's, it, it's not that it just happened to me once. I mean, we all know as human beings that the entire human experience is about loss. And it's how we come back from that each time. There's a collective toll that happens, uh, I think, which is what's interesting about being in this stage of life, retirement from ski racing and so on and so forth. But that near death experience though, opened opened up your life, right? Opened up Absolutely. your 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 eyes. You were you were truly more more alive as a result of this near death experience. But yes. then is there a responsibility to share that near-death experience, to share the evolution, to share the eye-opening with other people who might not have been through that? Is that part of what you're doing? Is it conscious? Is it subconscious? How does that work? Well, that's a great question. I, I don't think it's conscious. I think it's it's subconscious. And, and for me... Uh, People manifest service in all kinds of ways. I learned about being of service very young. And, and, and when I was 18, I did the uh, LifeSpring courses. Um, again, my mother introduced me to that. My mother also introduced me to Agape, uh, Agape International Spiritual Center in Los Angeles. Reverend Michael Beckwith uh, has been my master meditation teacher for over 30 years and this started before my accident, right? So, so it was a pursuit of, you know, these awakenings and and being of service, right? Because there's something that happens when we stop having the focus on ourselves and the focus is outside of ourselves. And and for me, what you know, people manifest service in big ways. They may have a nonprofit. You have one revolution and. These are wonderful, structured, measurable ways of being of service. I have always felt that, that being of service can be as impactful but simple as how do you show up? How do you come in the door? What, what's your energy when you come in the door? Are you bringing energy? Are you taking energy? And I always wanted to be, because I've always had a lot of energy, I like I wanted to bring energy towards something good, whatever that is. And that that's a large way that I am of service. And so the film, the film, like I said, there, there's still ego involved, okay? And and my ego has always been uh, extremely self-critical, extremely judgmental. Even, even through, and, and I don't know, their studies are coming out now that this is inherited through our DNA. And maybe I got some of that uh, from my mother's uh, side of the family and very humble uh, generations uh, on that side. Um, but 
I I wasn't coming from this place of I'm the greatest, you know, I wasn't a Muhammad Ali, like I'm the greatest, I'll show you. It was like, oh, I, I really, I, I really doubt, I really question. And the, the the feeling of humility of laying on the ground for my second near-death experience and my legs crushed and not knowing if I would live or die. And the prayer was, I want to live. When I woke up in ICU and I saw my mother's eyes, the person who I've shared so much of this spiritual journey with, and and the, the humility of, oh, that, that prayer was answered. I'm alive. What am I going to do with this? Think I'm any good enough, but I'm going to show up with energy and an intention to do good and be good and see what happens. And is that ultimately the definition of being alive? <laughs> that's showing up because because part of it for you the the impediment sounds like the ego saying i'm not good enough and that can be all the reason in the world to stop but if Absolutely. you're alive that's why it's taken 20 years well, well well that's if you're alive then then being alive is not stopping right i mean being dead is effectively stopping so being alive is not stopping and is, is that that definition and is that that impetus to go forward with an open heart, which opens yourself up to to failure, to heartbreak, to all of these other things that we want to avoid. But yet that's you've kind of seen it because it is I mean, it has to be the Phoenix, right? It has to be this like if it is this near death, this death experience, you have to rise from this death experience. Is that a lot of what has pushed you? And in pushing you, like there's a lot of time when you're in the hospital. You had- uh, I was in, in and out for three years. Three years, right tons of surgeries. Mind. You're lying there. And, you know, as you said, this is, this is pre-iPhone. This is pre-streaming. So you have a television in the- in the hospital room but i never turned it on but there's not really much of anything so in your thoughts as you're lying there did you envision okay this is my well really for you this is your third chance right so so you had the near-death experience when you were nine then another near-death right. experience did you envision where this might go, how it might manifest it, how you might look at yourself differently than you had before, the things that, that might have stopped you. <laughs> it, it, I have part of my meditation practice, and I think this is true for most people. Mm -hmm. it, it's an intention, it's a focus to stay in the present, mm -hmm. right? not going back, not going forward. If, if I had, and I, I look, I have done more looking back, obviously, because I have video and photographs and things to reference in looking back. And, and what did the Buddha say? You know, all pain exists in the past and, and in the future and, and, you know, in the present is where real happiness resides. And, and so that, that's what a meditator seeks, right? Like really being present and a near-death experience, nothing will put you in the present moment like that kind of urgency of life or death. Nothing puts you in the present moment quite like pushing out of the start gate for a ski race, right? We don't know what's going to happen. We just throw ourselves past that wand and go <laughs> like our life depends on it. At least that's how I ski raced. And... Uh, that that's how I have lived all of my life, right? I, if I knew where it was going, I definitely would have done things different. I, I <laughs> and I'm not going to get into that because that's a little personal. But you know, each one of us has. Uh, uh, I, I now I think about it, right? Because now I'm 53. And right. I go, well, something I never asked myself is like, well, where am I going to be in five years, or where am I going to be in 20 years when you hit that? 
top of the bell curve 50, you go, oh, ooh. and then you start thinking about these things. And that, that's where the, the practice of staying present is so valuable for recognizing, I don't know, maybe I don't wanna know what's ahead, uh, but what is right here, right now, that is precious. And that's to be enjoyed and, and to, and to uh, be fulfilled by. I'm far away from perfect at doing that. Oh my gosh, work in progress, the film, the lady <laughs> the whole nine yards. But the awareness around, oh, ah, catching myself. Okay. Ah, that's it. Next moment. Oh, catching myself. Okay. Getting caught in the the sea of commotion and ideas and judgment and comparison and self-criticism, da da da. And just stopping that and going, okay. Well, on your website, you asked the question of of effectively what would what would things have looked like if Anne Frank oh, yeah. had had a video camera yeah. instead of a diary? Right. And and it's it's interesting because it's for her, it sounded like she was looking for that true friend, right? So Anne Frank was looking for looking for and in, in saying a true friend, looking for a a vehicle through which she could be truly honest right and, and that's the representation of the true friend this sounds like a lot of what you're talking about in terms of being in the moment right. the moment is the moment is the honesty right it's unprocessed honesty it just it just is what it is and if you're fully there then it really is everything that it can be right. and and searching for those moments in telling the story, does that push you for some of those moments? Because as you said, skiing is something that pushes you into the present, but you had no design whatsoever on being a skier. You didn't look at that and say, this is a vehicle for me to become more of who I think I want to be or who I should be. Right. How did that work? That's where the love story unfolds. My film is a love story. It's not a hospital story or a skiing accomplishment story or uh, any. My story, when that film comes out, did you see Fire of Love? I love this movie this year. It's a love story. And there were a lot of movies at Sundance this year that were based on love stories. And what I have found since I have been gifted another day with He's over here on the couch. He just smiled. <laughs> You'd think he'd be bored of listening to me by now. <laughs> Gabrielle Reese said uh, when she was talking about Larry, do you ever like feel like you again? <laughs> I say that to Marcel after 24 years of being together. Is it you again? And he's like, I love you. And uh, I, I found the two greatest loves of my life uh, in the same day when I took my first lesson in a monoski with Marcel Wonen at the National Ability Center, a really handsome Swiss guy with white Alpina sunglasses and a mustache, very Euro. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Marcel, you, you must be from France. Oh, I speak French. And he said, no. You asked for a good ski coach. The best come from Switzerland. I am Swiss. So I, I was educated right off the bat with him, but uh, I fell in love with skiing. And more importantly, I fell in love with him because he is so passionate. And certainly at then that, that, that was really refreshing. I had just spent three years in and out of the hospital having 15 reconstructive surgeries on my legs. And here was this guy, you know, with his white leather royish gloves. <laughs> I told him they look like Mickey Mouse gloves. <laughs> you know, there's no such thing as disabled skiing. I teach skiing. Whether you're blind or backwards on one leg of mono, it doesn't matter. The ski doesn't know. You have to make it turn. You have to make it go fast. You have to put it on edge. You have to stop it. I will teach you skiing. And on the chairlift, off we were. 
And I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> so awesome. Everybody for the last three years has been telling me, you're handicapped, you're crippled, you're an amputee. And I'm like, that's not who I am. What happened to me is not who I am. Right. Okay. Who I am, Marcel saw. He saw potential. Nobody else did. You remember our head coach. Sorry, I won't say his name. But he, he was like, she's a double amputee. She'll never make it in the Paralympics. The factor system isn't for you. And da, 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 da. And I was like, I don't care. What, what was that dumb and dumber? He's like, one in a million? I've got a chance. You know, that was me like total dumb and dumber. Like slalom downhill. I don't know the difference. Just throw me, push me through that gate and let's go. And I'll, I wasn't in the hospital. I was in, I was on snow. I was on a mountain. I was with this incredibly passionate human being who uh, like washing the blood out of my hair didn't do things for me because he thought I couldn't do it or I was less than or disabled. He does, did they, he did and does things for me because he, he compliments me. He, he makes my life richer, easier, better. For him as well. <laughs> no, maybe but when you, Maybe if you ask him, he'll say, oh, she's a tough one. But um, I, I I know he genuinely loves me. And every meal that he cooks and every ski that he waxed and the house that he built. I mean, he built a house for us based on our travels around the world and ski racing and all the things we loved. You know, what we loved in Japan, what we loved in Switzerland, what we loved in New Zealand, like implementing all these things. And he's a highly skilled, you know, uh, Swiss woodworker. So he, he made this house perfectly accessible and accessible in a way that's not, you know, a big blue sign and grab bars on the wall. Like, this is accessible. I hit you over the head with that. It's, it's like, it just flows. And it's such a representation to me of like how inclusive the world can be without like patting yourself on the back for accessibility or inclusion, you know, it just, it, it, it's a flow and like everyone is welcome and every movement is uh, possible. And he did that for me, for us. It's not finished yet and neither is my film, but we're working on it. Working on it, a work in progress. Well, you hope that it all is a work in progress, right? If there's, if there's a de definite finish, then then sometimes then there has to be something next, really. Oh, but yeah. this is an ongoing process. What did skiing represent for you? I mean, you'd come out of the hospital, you know. This is this is sort of as you said. This isn't being in the hospital. This isn't doctors. This is suddenly being on a mountain. What? What did that represent for you physically, mentally, emotionally? Because it sounds like it's always that journey for you. Well, Marcel was coming from a ski racing background. He had raced with some of the best ski racers at the time in Switzerland. And you just have to watch him ski. Okay. When you watch him ski, it's like Mikhail Barishnikov when he would dance. You know, it, it was so much strength and power and energy, but flow and grace and precision. And, and I, I would just see him ski and his, uh, his facility, facility, faculty, his adaptability on skis, what he could do. And, and, that, and that he was so committed to figuring out how to teach me on one ski to do that. And, and it, it was just pure joy, just pure bliss and incredibly hard work, which I love. You know, that's that's where my self-critic is satisfied, right? Well, just keep working harder, just keep working harder. You know, you'll be worth it if you just keep working harder, learn more. And there was so much to learn. This was a whole world. I didn't know anything about the ski racing world. And then you go to Switzerland and you see that it's a, and that it's a vibe, it's a vibration and that people live for it and they're born into it and they raise up in it. And he's part of that tradition and that history. And I was like, wow, if I, like, like Jesus, you know, if I could just touch the hem of his 
garment, his racing suit. <laughs> and, you know, I, I would have access into this magical world that was such a massive departure from the, the, the smell of rubbing alcohol and bleached blankets and the sensation of another IV going in and, and the breathing that it takes to get through the pain, like all that. You just got to go fast and be precise and get that ski on edge. And, and the conditions always changing and uh, the snow can, and, and he, he is, he is like no excuse. That, that, that's the deal with Marcel. No excuse. You can't blame the equipment. You can't blame the terrain. You can't blame the race course set. You can't blame your, uh, the, the snow. You have what you have to work with today in this moment. And you get out there and you give it your best. And for me, I, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back on it, I could see, oh, that's what living with a disability is, right? I can't change the condition. I can't, I, I can't waste energy, you know, uh, feeling sad about what I don't have, what I wish. It's like, this is it. This is what I have to work with. This is today. I got to go out and live it. Living it, exactly. Maybe that's why you finally asked me to be on your show. That could be it, exactly. <laughs> The, the the pursuit, I mean, with Marcel, with ski racing, with skiing, what about with storytelling? I mean, storytelling was your ultimate pursuit. How does storytelling fit within this now new pursuit and another eye-opening experience? Yeah, it, it's pure magic, right? Okay, so Marcel's mother language is Swiss German, which is a spoken language. It's based on high German or proper German uh, and Italian and French and a little Romance, but it's a spoken language. And he is so attuned to, to, to what he hears. You know, he has this incredible sensitivity. So his, how he listens and interprets language and he taught himself English, which I find remarkable that you could just pick up and go to another country without speaking the language and start over. And that's what he did here in the US. Like he took me into his world and, and, and that just, uh, you know, opened up the library of endless books of stories from, you know, this teeny tiny little country that's a fifth of the size of Utah, Switzerland and, and 8 million people, is that right? 8 million? And, and, and so rich so rich with uh, a pride in how they do things. They make watches and cheese and chocolate and you know, it's like whatever they make, it's quality because that's what they value. It's part of the culture. And so for me, the stories in Switzerland, this whole new world that I got to you know, enter into through him, was just fascinating, brilliant. I still love it. I, I would go, I told him right now, I was like, should we go back? Should we go back to Cortina? The Olympics are coming to Cortina. It would be the 20 year anniversary since I won the gold medal in Torino and there's nothing like winning an Olympic gold medal in Italy, people. So if you want to wax your skis, this is how I talk to the athletes. Ask Matthew. Matthew's like, I think you want to go more than I do, Steph. <laughs> You're retired, let's not forget that. But there is nothing like winning in Italy. You know, I won one of those globes in Italy too. And we went down to the restaurant for dinner in the hotel and, and the waiter comes over. I, I mean, just the whole posture. You know, waiting is a profession. You know, they, they have so much pride, right? He comes over and with his little scraper scripts that comes up and, and uh, he said, you are the one who won. Would you bring down your globe? Marcel went up to the the whole restaurant. They, they, they passed out champagne for everyone in the restaurant, and they all did a toast and held held up my globe. I don't know what could happen in the U.S. It didn't happen to me in the U.S. It happened to me in Italy. And and so you you have these magical experiences and and accumulate these stories through your experience that uh, it would be sad not to share it. So thank you for having me on your show and, and getting to share a little bit of it because I, I love it and I really appreciate all that I was exposed to in all these different countries and cultures around the world. And the language, the language to me is so captivating.
And you speak Swiss German now, right? <laughs> well, I certainly gave it my best effort to uh, get my Swiss passport that was part of the interview process at the Swiss consulate in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I, I studied for months. And for me, because I'm a visual person, uh, different, you know, Marcel's, I think, both visual and kinesthetic and auditory, but I am definitely a visual person. So I put together a storybook of all of our experiences in Switzerland. And when I spoke at the European Cup finals and um, Michael Canales had asked me if I would be the speaker on behalf of the athletes. And this was in Davos, Switzerland. And I knew it was going to be on TV and that was so cool for his family. And no one would see it in the U.S. But I went out there and gave this speech and I came backstage and there was a gentleman standing there, very nice, you know, nicely dressed, very, very Swiss. And, and he said to me, you did a lovely job. And I said, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> you for that and um and then he went out and spoke after me and he happened to be the president of switzerland recognize him but uh he invited us to uh the bundes house which is you know their senate and we went and did that so so i had all kinds of pictures in my picture book and and when i went in there i answered the questions you know for uh to become swiss i am a i was gonna say a bilateral I am a bilateral amputee, but I'm also a dual citizen, both in the U.S. and in Switzerland, and so is Marcel. And did you do that in English, or did you do it in Swiss German? I, I answered most of the questions in Swiss German. And when you're under pressure, like the, lang the second language that you learn, which for me was French, that would kick in. So I would throw some French words in there, and she to me, like, okay, make a choice. We can talk in French, because she certainly spoke German and French and Italian and everything. Um, she was very kind to me and we finished up uh, in English, but they, they really loved my picture book that told the story of my cultural ties and connection to Switzerland, because that's what's very important. If you're not living in the country and you become a citizen, you know, you have to demonstrate your, your ties to Switzerland. And uh, I, I think I did that very successfully. And then I went and raced for Switzerland as a thank you to my coach. So that was, uh, that sealed the deal. Now you've had a bunch of false starts as far as your ending to the film, right? Because Salt Lake in some ways in 2002, making your first Paralympic games, winning a bronze medal was going to be the ending. And then it kept continuing and continuing. Are you somebody who has an easier time with beginnings being in the moment than you do with endings? Is this part of the issue or do you have an idea of where the ending might be or or is it is it so hard that if you end, then it's ended as opposed to continuing? Exactly. I think you are a very uh, keen observer, Chris, and you have a great way of articulating that. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but uh, when I met Marcel, you know, part of the thrill and excitement of skiing and the Paralympics, you know, he said there's no greater honor to race for your country in your own country you don't have a chance of making the Salt Lake team, but if you train with me, and that I did, uh, and we won the bronze medal, and he was thrilled, like, yay, we did it. And I was like, no, 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 no. I put a declaration out to the universe that I was going to win a goal. And uh, the secret, of course, was that I married my coach and was able to achieve that in Torino. Uh, so, so that always felt like the gold medal ending, right? You know, the walking off into the sunset. I really have no idea what the editing uh, process is going at this stage, right? There's viewing footage, there's cutting scenes. We've assembled uh, a long cut called, we're calling it the greatest hits of, you know, things that, that happened, uh, story points along the way. But a crafted editor, which I am not, uh, is, you know, the next member of my team that I'm hoping to bring on board and, and they will bring as well as a producer and maybe even a co-director, I don't know, to uh, 
you know, really explore for the sake of storytelling. Like I've had to really separate between the life of Stephanie Victor and a documentary film that's a love story, right? So, you know, what what is in 90 minutes the story that I want to tell? And that's not going to be everything. Um, so there will be putting some endings on it. And I do like beginnings. So I have to embrace this, I think, in order for it to actually happen as just like I did in ski racing that I, I won giant slalom, no secret to anybody, my favorite discipline, even though I won my most world cups in slalom, uh, I just was always second in giant slalom, uh, except when I won in the world championships and, and that globe, uh, that one year, but the thing that broke that silver streak of silver World Cup wins in, in Giant Solemn was when I was up in the start, you know, all the ways I thought, you know, how do I just go two tenths faster? What I discovered was that I had to give myself permission to fail. I had to risk going out of the race, getting hurt, uh, uh, losing the globe, right? You can't not finish a race and still win the globe in most cases. And so I had to give myself permission to fail. And as I, as I was, you know, in the start house and thinking, okay, I'm going to give myself permission to fail. And I'm also going to give myself permission to ski the absolute best race that I ever have. And to believe in myself that right here in this moment, there is nothing more that I have to get. I have everything it takes in this moment to fail and deal with that or win gloriously and receive that. Okay. And I, I think in order for my film to get made, I've got to give myself permission to fall badly. <laughs> and that, that will be the opening of the space to let real creativity and real, uh, connection and authenticity to unfold. And that is that is my hope for the film, period. In the same way that I wanted to race for Switzerland to thank Marcel, I don't want this film to be about me. I want this film to be about what a great gift this life has given me to, to spend so many years in marriage and in skiing and in this life with someone like Marcel. That sounds like our, that sounds right, like you're higher, Chris. you can direct it. <laughs> approaching, approaching the time. Well, it is, I mean, it, it is a challenge because one, you're talking about, you're talking about giving yourself permission in a ski race, right. permission to fail. There will be another ski race, but this is. <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. Right. But at the moment <laughs> there, at, at that time, there would have been. But this is also, this is, this is your life and your life in a far more profound way than you probably ever envisioned your life could, could be. And then with that profound part of it comes a, a responsibility to make sense of the profound nature that you've experienced in a way that is eminently human so that it can so that it connects with with other people and so so i think i think it's really interesting that you say you have to give yourself permission to fail but permission to to explore that 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 that, uh, that greatness because that greatness really ultimately or the greatness or the 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 sense i mean this is i mean so much of what you talked about is is the essential to to explore the the essential and, and and that essential is is something that that emanates from the organic as opposed to something that's processed it's like you can't the essential is almost something you can't really you can't really put it all together you know it's, it's sort of like that little the little prince quote right that the essential is invisible to the eyes what's truly uh can i get it right what's what's truly uh is it, it only comes from the heart i believe it's what it was you know and so so yes so 
it's amazing what you're doing. And I hope that I, I hope that you find the sense and the symmetry and the space to 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 allow it to have to have its own life. Thank you for that. Thank you. The one thing that I know I'm missing is that, you know, what what came out of the hospital in the beginning was certainly like the wow, you know, factor uh, and and filming that. And a lot of that was really, really painful stuff that I moved through both physically, emotionally, but, but also the people around me were moving through. And what I feel is missing in my film and what we filmed for the last 27 years is uh, so much of the joy. You know, we were in our joy when we were experiencing joy and therefore being in it means you're not thinking, hey, we should film this. But in the very painful and dark moments, there, there was a, I felt compelled to film it because it, it, was, un, it was unreal. It was uh, hard to process. And, and, and somehow, like Anne Frank, looking for that friend and, and looking for that connection and, and way to... Uh, anchor some some sort of proof this happened right that's how i felt filming especially in the beginning and uh that changed over the years and it's changed since our relationship to filming has changed and there's that documentary the fantastic machine i'll talk about it again like it really showed uh how different we are uh, and and how fantastic this machine is, and yet it's it's causing some problems. So so for me, I, I want it to be a thank you, uh, an expression of gratitude. The many people that crossed my path that I may not ever see or connect with again, but that they know that I have lived a a, a full and prosperous and productive and independent life that has been of joy and love. And that is thanks to Marcel. Well, I, I think that you've brought a lot to it as well. I, I wouldn't diminish. Yeah, well, you you, you brought, you're saying you're, you're, your goal is to bring the open heart to whatever you're doing. And, and that certainly is, is a step to being open to any of these experiences. And you've had a lot of experiences, so. Thank you. And thank you for also giving us that little bit of that nugget of, of it's so easy. We're conditioned to, to film and to highlight the differences and, mm -hmm. and we miss the things that we share, the sense of the sense of joy that really mm -hmm. brings us together as a thing, as opposed to the things that, that separate us. So thank you for joining us, Stephanie, for such thank an amazing you. little journey here or big journey. Not a little journey, a very big journey. It, it has to be said, um, because I want to say it, that we all need people to look up to, right? And when I started on my ski racing career, there were two members monoskiing on the U.S. disabled ski team at the time. That was yourself and, and Sarah Will. And you both embodied in the US expression of it, that ski racing culture that I fell in love with in Marcel and in Switzerland. And I just wanna thank you for the, the person that you are, the integrity that you had in your sport and that you've parlayed into your film and your foundation and, and the way that you're connecting people. Um, you're a tremendous role model and that started as a ski racer and you've evolved it into so much more. And you, you, you've you always been someone that I look up to and will continue to look up to. So it's been a real uh, privilege for me to be on your show today. Oh, well, thank you so much. That is so nice to hear. And I think we all have heroes. We don't always know who, who treats us as a hero, who sees us as a hero. So 
I appreciate that. And Sarah obviously is is great company there. It's great to be in her company and and holding that torch. So so thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. Yeah. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope that you've enjoyed our journey here. And the best thing you can do for us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in when this is is out. Please like us. Please follow us. Please subscribe. And we will continue to bring you great content. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris White Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.